Well, I know we all watch TV for the most part, so you know I'm just going to assume to some degree we're we're aware of this one show that honestly I'm just going to be I'm not a big fan of like I'm not I don't watch it, but uh, I know of it. Uh, it's called The Biggest Loser. Um, you could see maybe why I'm not a big fan. I don't know a little too much pumpkin pie lately, um, but nonetheless uh, the show is basically about a person who it weighs a particular amount. And over a period of time, what happens? They lose it. Something drastically changes. They lose uh, a lot of weight. And over a period of time, uh, six months or whatever, they, then they come back and they see the, the later, you know, what's happened the last six months. You see, man, are they the same or are they different? And sure enough, you'll see that most of the, at least the testimonies that they show on the show itself Reveal, man, this, is, this person is completely different from where they once were to where they are now. Man, this is not the same person physically. And so people begin to ask, what's your secret, right? How has this happened? How have you gone from this physically to losing all that weight and now uh, looking like that? And to some degree, this is pretty easy to figure out, right? Like, in Biggest Loser, it was simple. They changed their diet, and they changed their activity levels. And in a very intense way, over time, with discipline, their whole body changed. So to some degree that, you know, we understand what happens there. In the passage that we're looking at tonight, a drastic change has occurred. If you remember, this is our third part, it's almost like a trilogy, We've been in this one particular vignette, this one story over the last three weeks, and now uh, we see this crippled beggar for 40 years, as we find out tonight, for 40 years was unable to walk his whole life. And now, out of nowhere, this guy's leaping and jumping and praising God in the temple, and people are wondering what? How in the world has this taken place? It's created quite a stir. Jim last week came and he talked a little bit about the stir that occurred in the temple, how this crowd gathered. And they're all staring at Peter and John. And Peter and John are saying, why are you looking at us? As if we're the reason. As if we're the source of this person's radical transformation. So tonight, again, we're coming to the same passage. Now Peter and John, what's happened is they've, they've, been, they've been annoying the leaders. This stir has been quite an annoyance, as it says in the opening verse of this chapter. And then they arrested Peter and John. They put him in prison. It was late at night, so they're going to deal with it in the morning. The bottom line is this. When people begin to see radical transformation take place in somebody's life, whether we're talking physical or spiritual, whatever the case may be, people are going to want to know, how in the world is this taking place? There needs to be an explanation. And tonight, we're going to get that explanation for a second time, yet a different audience. And if we didn't get it last week, the nature and the source of spiritual transformation, if we didn't get it last week, good news is this, we're going to get it this week. Right? we got to love that about the Bible. Time and time again, we hear something, but then we forget. And what does God do? He reminds us. 
Oftentimes in the Bible you hear the word remember. Well, we have an opportunity for the truth of the source of a radical life transformation to be reminded of that. And so I want to bring you there tonight to Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 22. Follow along with me as this three-part story that we've broken up anyway into three parts is, comes to its end. Verse 5 of chapter 4 in the book of Acts. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means of this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. But seeing, oh, I'm sorry, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them as evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. and We cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. When they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. But the man on whom the sign of healing was performed, was more than 40 years old. Amen. You know, in today's world, I don't know if you find this, but it's really hard to get everybody in the same room at the same time. Right? We're quite busy. Our schedules are full, and there's a lot of factors at play. It's a society that's literally gone nuts with our calendars. We have them at our fingertips thinking that we're in control of them, but in all reality, I mean, we're getting kicked around like a can, right? So the idea that we're going to get all of us in the same room at the same time in the same place to meet, especially spontaneously, 
kind of crazy. But you see what's happened here. Even these big names, right? The next day, after this healing took place, all the rulers and elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem. Out of nowhere, spontaneously, even in the midst of their crazy schedules and all the things that they had to deal with, they were able to come together with Annas the high priest, the big man, the big shot, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all were of the high priestly family. As if they had nothing else to do, if they had nowhere else to be, as if there was not another appointment in their calendar that would, that would uh, prohibit them from being there. Well, there's a reason for this. The issue at hand is demanding that all of their calendars and all of their previous appointments be pushed to the side. And this issue be dealt with. The issue is that these two men are proclaiming and teaching in the name of Jesus. And at the very same time, that message is being authenticated with a healing like some guy who's never been able to walk is now jumping around and praising God in the temple and Jesus is getting all the credit for it. The same Jesus that two months ago they condemned to death and hung on a tree. There's a big issue at stake, isn't there? They're all going to clear their calendars and they're all going to get to the bottom of this because of the ramifications if this were to continue to happen. It's basically an early retirement plan for the religious leaders, isn't it? The role that they love, which put Jesus where he was, that killed Jesus, was at stake. They did not believe, and they did not want the message to get out. So, here they are. They're asking the question that we think they're going to ask. As someone who has gone through such a radical transformation as this man has gone through, somebody's going to ask the question, what? By what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, how in the world did this happen? Explain. When people see life transformation take place, they want an explanation. They want to know the source of this life transformation. What's the secret? How could you, who used to be like this, all of a sudden, now be that? And so what do Peter and John do? Look at verse 8. I love his response, and I love the the introduction to the response, because any response that is going to give God the glory and the honor that he deserves is what? Going to be a response by which we, or anyone, is filled with God the Holy Spirit. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, basically, if, if we're being examined today, For how in the world this radical transformation has taken place. Listen up. We're going to make it clear to you the source of life transformation. And he says, clearly and boldly in the face of the people who two months ago killed Jesus. He says this. Listen. The source 
of radical life transformation, the power in which has caused this man, who was not able to walk, now walk and leap and praise God in the temple, that power came from one person, one place, Jesus. When questioned about the source of miraculous change, Peter and John boldly answer with the name of the crucified and risen Jesus. Right? Let's be clear. That Jesus. Not our own version of Jesus, but that Jesus. Right? He goes on to say, this Jesus. We're good at coming up with our own versions of Jesus, aren't we? As if that Jesus that we've made in our own image is the one that the world needs, is the one that is the source of radical transformation. Whatever that other Jesus is, we're really good of that. Like people coming out with books called The Third Jesus, as if the first Jesus wasn't sufficient. And so let's be clear, when we're talking about Jesus being the source of miraculous life change that has caused this To happen, we're talking about the Jesus, the same Jesus that two months ago was crucified and now has raised from the dead. That Jesus. Any power that comes from this Jesus is coming from the fact that he had the power to conquer sin and conquer death in our place. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. That is the Jesus that we need to be talking about when we're questioned about the nature and the source of miraculous life change. Not a new Jesus, not a cool Jesus with a skateboard, although I'm not opposed to skateboards. I'm talking about the Jesus with a cross and the Jesus with an empty tomb. That Jesus, that's the Jesus that Peter and John proclaim is the source of life change. And that's the Jesus that we need to proclaim when we are questioned by the world around us. When they look at our lives or they look at the lives of others and they say, what What's made the difference in you? What's... Now, I used to know you, Mike. I remember you. Something's different about the person that you used to be and the person that you now are. I remember what you were like as a kid, Mike. And now I know you today, and there's a massive disconnect between what you used to be and what God has now made you to be. Please explain to me what has made all the difference in the world. And all you got to do is change the name to one of us, one of you in the room. Right? When we're questioned about the source, we need to boldly proclaim the name of the crucified and risen Jesus. What's different? And friends, I believe... That as people interact with us, they're going to be interacting with our relationship that we have with Christ. And they are going to be interacting with the representation of Christ as well that's in our life. Because it's not just, man, you're different than you used to be. Like, your present is not the same as your past. But there's also a distinction between the way you are and the way the world is. You tracking with me? It's not just you're different than you, 
But you, the way you respond, the way you relate to people is so radically different that I've got to understand the nature of it. I've got to understand what is undergirding it. What is the source? What is the power that makes you different? And in that moment, we have an opportunity. We have a question that has been posed to us. And there is a very strategic reason. There is good reason why those questions are asked. And I want you to just stay there for a moment. This is a real profound question. Are you ready? Why do people ask questions? (laughs) Uh, Yep. They want an answer. So let's give it to them, right? This isn't rocket science. All it is is hearing the question, living in such a way that there's obvious distinction between who we were and obvious distinction between us and the world, the way we relate, the way we respond to life, the way that we do our family, the way we work. In such a way that the questions come. And friends, if the questions are not coming about the difference, we need to at least evaluate. We at least need to approach God and say, God, what's going on in my life where there's not astounding difference between the way I live and the way this world lives? But I believe that many of you are doing that. I've watched you. I've seen your lives. I've seen your marriages. I've I've seen how you work and how you relate to one another. And if the world gets a touch of that, I've just got to believe that they're going to ask the question, hey, you got to tell me what's different about you. And you know what? That is literally an opportunity for us to give them an answer. And we cannot shy away from that moment. When questions come, we boldly proclaim the name of the crucified and risen Jesus. That's why they're asking questions, because they want an answer. Jesus is the source of lasting life change. Let's tell the world. That's what's made the difference in me. And that's it. It wasn't the degree I got. It wasn't my upbringing per se. It, you know, it's not my car. It's not my house. It's not some great decisions that I've made that really... Sh- make me sharp and compared to the dullness of of the rest of the world, that there's one singular source of lasting life change. And if I need to give credit, if you're examining me tonight about what's going on in my life, it's just one simple name, Jesus. But there's also another reason, I believe, that is implicit in this passage why the questions are coming. Now, keeping in mind, the the religious leaders of the day, they don't have the right motives. We know that. So some people ask questions with the right motives, and some people ask the questions with all the wrong motives. But nonetheless, the questions will come, and our response will never change. Proclaim the name of Jesus. But I think something else is at work here, and Peter sees it, and I wonder if we see it. I wonder if we see... Another reason why the question is being asked, by what power and what authority and under what name is this man who once sit at the steps, unable to move, is now able to physically run around and leap in the temple? I believe it's simply this. 
that the questions that are coming from the people are opportunities, God-given opportunities to move from the temporal realities, the physical realities, and it's an open door, a window ajar for us to enter in to the spiritual, eternal, and ultimate realities of salvation. It's not just about a guy walking around jumping and leaping, but this question is a deeper issue. It points to a greater, ultimate reality that is found in the same person of Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. See what Peter does? He sees the question, he hears it, he answers it directly. This guy, if you want to know how this guy got healed, Jesus. And there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He moves from the physical to the spiritual. He moves to the temporal to what? The eternal. Those moments were felt needs and obvious things that we can see on the surface. When those things are addressed by the people of this world, we need to answer them. But friends, don't stop there. Don't stop and say, hey, it was Jesus. He helped me be more patient. But to move from Jesus help me be more patient. And if you, if you want to understand what Jesus has done more, let me explain all Jesus has done to save me, not from just impatience, but from every sin in the state that I used to live in that I've ever committed. Right? You're bringing them to Jesus being more than just the source of healing, but the source of eternal salvation from our sin. So we see that this miracle is just a dramatic illustration of something much more profound, something much more ultimate, that Jesus is not just able to to restore strength to feeble legs. He's not just able to make some man walk, right? He's able to make all men worship, right? Our greatest ineptness, our inability to worship God, our inability to draw near to Him because of our sin. That's the greatest miracle that this physical miracle is pointing us to. That there is salvation. Just stop there for a minute. What a hopeful claim. Friends, listen up. There is salvation. I don't know... What you've gone through, I don't know what sin you've committed, I don't know how grotesque it is, how awful you think your past is, how unforgivable that moment or that decision may seem. But understand this, or maybe, maybe there's someone in your life that you say, man, they're too far gone. There's no hope for them. God would never have relationship with so-and-so. Friends, let's be clear, there is salvation in Jesus. Salvation is not something that's unavailable and unsecured for a sinning sinning world. We have to have that firm conviction. If we are going to reach every man, woman, and child in these geographies, we need to be a people marked by hope and faith in the reality that salvation is available. Salvation has been secured. 
that when Jesus died in our place for our sins and raised from the dead, guess what? Salvation was secured for the people of God. It's a hopeful word about this Jesus. There is salvation. But understand this. It's also a claim that is emphasizing exclusivity, meaning there's only one source for salvation. This salvation that has been secured is found in only one person. And at this moment, that statement, there's no other name, there's no one else, comes face to face and confronts one of culture's most deeply profound values right now. Pluralism. We are a pluralistic planet, aren't we? There's a big buffet that we can all just go pay $9.99 for and take and pick what we would like and call that the journey down the, down the buffet line to salvation. It doesn't matter what you call it. It doesn't matter how you do it. As long as you believe in something, you're good. In the name of diversity, in the name of tolerance, not that I'm against any of those things, please. In that name, there's great rhetoric in today's world about many ways leading to one God, or many ways leading to multiple gods. For instance, the pastor of many people throughout all of America and the world, the global icon Oprah Winfrey, said this, There are millions of ways to be a human being and many paths to what we call God. And her buddy, Eckhart Tolle, who wrote the book The New Earth, says that all religions are equally false and equally true depending on how you use them. Is this not the world in which we live? Is this not our gospel in America? But I thought Christians... I'm sorry, Americans were Christians, right? After all, 2008 study revealed that 75% of Americans claim to be Christian. 75%. Interestingly enough, 65% of Americans claim that there are many paths to God. Wait a minute. Christian Bible... And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Americans claim to be Christian. They must not be reading verse 12. The article that put out the information of the study, Newsweek, basically said that Americans are more Hindu than they are Christian. Why would they make a claim like that? Hindus believe in millions of gods. They believe in Jesus too. And so while we've for so long referred to America as this Christian nation, the reality is this. It's more Hindu than it is Christian. And that's not just an American pattern, right? Like out there, uh, you know, 350 million people. The people that live in the northern suburbs of Onondaga County, I'll tell you what, I guarantee many of them, if not most of them, believe that. They're going to fall in line with a pluralistic mindset. But the Christian message, what Peter declares, the gospel 
about the crucified and risen Jesus says that, that there is no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And if there's any reason that Renovation Church exists, is here tonight, while the Steelers are down 21-3, to there's any reason that we're here tonight, it's because the world needs to know that there is salvation in Jesus. Because the people of Baldwinsville are confused as they enter the buffet line. The people of Liverpool have a twisted understanding of salvation. Maybe they don't know it's available, or maybe they don't know who the well is of salvation from which to draw. Maybe they're withdrawing from all the wrong wells or other so-called wells and they think they're good, but the reality is it's us, it's people like you and me empowered by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, sent on mission into these neighborhoods that are going to give people repeated opportunities to hear and respond to the truth that there is no other name given among heaven by which we must be saved, Jesus So it's an exclusive claim. He sees the opportunity. He takes it. It's not just about the physical healing. There's something greater at stake. There's a greater message that needs to be declared. That salvation is in Jesus. That's what this means. There's a grace in this, right? It's given among men. It's not something that's earned. This name is given among men. And last... I love it. It says, by which we must be saved. Friends, it carries an urgent necessity. And I think as people who are coming together to plant a church in this area, we have to have an urgent necessity about the souls of men and women up here, don't we? Man, the calendars. We can go through life. Oh, man, I got to do that. Yeah, I got to do that. Shoot, shoot, shoot. Next week, next week, next week urgent necessity this whole summer and I'm still struggling there's been a reorganizing a reorienting of my life to include very intentional regular times to be engaged with people who do not know Jesus I'm so used to pastoring behind a desk in the city friends there may need to be a corporate reorganizing, reorienting of our lives that will take a couple months, that may take six months in the rest of our lives to say we will take responsibility for our street, for our family, for our co-workers, and we will say, hey, we're going to have to give up a Friday night every once in a while. Saturday mornings may not be as comfortable as they once were because of the urgent necessity of this salvation message. Do you feel that? Do you feel the urgent necessity that people who do not know Jesus are not saved? Can we just... I'm not saying we're great. We're just saved by grace. But people who do not know Jesus are not saved from their sin. They still live in that sin and are subject to the wrath of God because of that sin. Can we have an urgent necessity about our neighbors... Do I sound angry? I feel like I'm not angry. I'm I'm excited. But there's an urgent necessity. And I'm patient with that. Because there are weeks that go by and I think, man, all I do is pastor a church again this week. It's going to take time. 
to reorient. It's going to take text messages. It's going to take lunch appointments once every six weeks, even though you intend to do it once every week. It's going to take time. But we have to reorient our lives with an urgent necessity so that those questions arise, so that the opportunities come that we can say, it's all Jesus. And give people an opportunity to experience him as well. When questions come, when opportunities arise, we are a people that proclaim the name of Jesus. Amen? The leaders are beside themselves. Shoot. And they're confused, right? These guys are talking to us like that? Aren't these guys fishermen? These people don't, they're not educated. They didn't go to Harvard. Right? They didn't go to New England School of Law. Right, Jared? Who are these guys? What do they know? They're unschooled men. And yet they speak with such boldness and authority. And the guy is healed. All right, you, Peter and John, you've you got to take off from it. We've got to talk about this. What are we going to do? Right? They can't deny it. There's nothing that they can say in opposition. What are we going to do with these guys? A notable sign has been a f- performed, verse 16. We can't deny it, but wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. We can't deny it, but maybe we can contain it. Maybe we can contain the message. Maybe we can keep the people from knowing the truth. Is that not the schemes of the enemy, right? To silence the people of God who know the source of truth and keep them from speaking it who know the source of salvation, and keep them from inviting people to partake of that. Is that not the scheme of Satan to say, shh, quiet, don't say anything. You're not allowed. You're going to get fired. Shh. Is that not the scheme of Satan Right, Because in their mind, if they silence the disciples, if they keep the word from getting out about the source of salvation, guess what? They will deny the people access to the power of that salvation. And is that not our challenge in church planting today? It's not relevance, right? I mean, come on, we're relevant. Come on. No, we're not. Well, we are. Does culture define what's relevant, or is God defining what's relevant? Aren't, isn't the world irrelevant, really? That's philosophy. Anyway, the point is this. That's not our battle, relevance. It's not our battle. Our battle is accessibility. And at Renovation Church, we believe that that's the power of what we are doing in Liverpool, Baldensville, and Clay. We looked at people who were worshiping at Missio, and we said, can we not make the gospel more accessible to the lives of people in the northern suburbs by sending them there so that they can be in relationship with Jesus, represent Jesus, and proclaim the name of Jesus when questions are asked and opportunities arise. And not if questions are asked, when questions are asked. Is that not what we are doing here? You say, man, I kind of like that building downtown. Man, I kind of like... Can we just... We all love the building downtown. It's great. But it's not accessible, per se. People in the northern suburbs driving into the city, it's kind of like, no, not going to do that. 
So the idea is that we are the people of God sent on mission in these communities so that we can be accessible to the people in which live here that do not know Jesus so that we can proclaim the name, not so that we can shh. And the worst thing you can do is be a really great guy and not tell them why. Because then you're just a great guy and you get all the glory, right? No one's ever going to be saved by a nice guy. Amen? You can be saved by Jesus. So proclaim the name. Pressure's going to come. Pressure's going to come. It's inevitable. People will not jive with the exclusivistic message of Jesus, are they? At least not everybody. Pressure will come. Be quiet. Matter of fact, uh, there's a, a woman by the name of Diana Eck, who's a professor over at Harvard, And she leads something called the Pluralism Project. (laughs) Oh, yeah. The Pluralism Project. I know you're going to Google it tonight, right? Probably not, but... You know what she says? Given religious diversity in the world... Listen to this. She says, Evangelism is an inappropriate response to religious plurality. Isn't that... Isn't that a shh moment? For the world. Evangelism is not appropriate when it comes to the religious plurality of our world. Again, there's only one sin today, right? Exclusivistic or exclusive messages about salvation. That's the only thing that's not allowed. For you to call the shots, or to you to have the corner, or to you to have the authority that's, that really all of the world needs to submit to. For us to say that Jesus is the only way, is just and to preach that, and to proclaim that, and to tell the good news about a risen Jesus, who's conquered sin, whom now we can have faith and trust in, and enter into relationship now, and live in a very way that we were created by God to live. For us to preach that message... And that when people say, by what power and authority, and what name have you done this? For us to say, Jesus, and he's the only one, that's just inappropriate. That's pressure. That's the world saying, shush your mouth about Jesus. Love verse 19. Say, tell him that. Shut up, basically. But no matter how many times the world tells us to shut up, Jesus has told us to speak up, right? No matter how intense or manipulative or coercive the the command of culture is to shut up about Jesus, our Lord has said what? Go. All the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them. You say, well, that's not words. Come on, let's be serious. Teaching them. All that I've commanded you. Right? Peter is obeying his Lord. Look at what he says. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. Wow. Your command is in direct contradiction to the command of God. You guys are on different playing fields. You're inconsistent with God. That's scary you got to judge that. That's up to you to say. But here's our conclusion. 
we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Right? The, the, the pressure and opposition of this world does not negate our Lord's commission to us. When we're told to shut up, we know that we're called to speak up. And for those of us who are compelled, who've been truly transformed by the crucified and risen Jesus, we can't not, right? If we, if we truly encounter Jesus the way that this man encounters Jesus, not just from a physical perspective, but from a spiritual, eternal perspective, to be invited back into relationship with God, if we have experienced that from Jesus, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. We've got to do it. We're compelled. Your, your pressure is actually not all that compelling. Eh, nice try. We're going with Jesus. Right? Kevin DeYoung says this, Christians should anticipate collision with the culture. Right? He says, don't panic. It's okay. <laughs> don't panic. Didn't Jesus tell us, rejoice when you're persecuted for my name? Rejoice. It, you're on, that tells you, you're, you're going against the grain here. You're speaking of something the world is rejecting. Be, be re- rejoicing in that. Don't panic. Don't revile. We don't got to throw stones back at them. But I love how he ends it. Don't retreat. When their guns come out blazing, when fire seems intense from the other side, and friends, let's use that language. This is a battle for the soul. This is more than a dialogue at a table, at a coffee shop. This is a battle for the human soul. This is a war. This is a fight. And Satan's bringing all his guns to keep the people that you know from knowing Jesus in any way, shape, or form, to silence you. And when we're faced with that collision, we refuse to retreat, even if it means our death. There's urgent necessity for you, isn't it? No matter what the cost, no matter what the inconvenience, no matter how intense the pressure from the world, we will not walk away from our Lord who has told us to tell the world, to preach the gospel to all of creation. And when we preach the gospel, we're proclaiming the name of Jesus. And that name is the sole, singular, exclusive source of salvation. That's our message. That's the message that's transformed us. And that's the message that will transform Baldwinsville, Liverpool, and Clay as we are obedient and we make it accessible in our lives and in our words. That's what God wants to do. Do you believe that? Do you believe God wants to do that here? Are we, are we giving up? Man, it's hard. It's tough soil, man. This is... Man, I shared the gospel three times this week, and everyone just looked at me like I was nuts. Revival. Get out of here. Are we done? We're packing it in? Or do we really believe that God wants to do something in us and through us in this place? Got to believe that. 
We've got to be obedient to that. And, you know, I've got to land the plane here. But the reality is this. It's a great message, isn't it? I mean, not the sermon, but the verse. I'm being serious about that. <laughs> it's great to talk about it here tonight. It's meaningful. It builds us up. It encourages us. But you know what? It needs to go out from this place. It doesn't need to just be talked about on a Sunday night. It needs to go forth. We talked about it on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. At breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It needs to be a part of everything that we do. Work, play, family, relationships, neighborhood. Where we go, God goes. I've heard that before. The gospel goes in us. It's nice to talk about it here on Sunday night while the Steelers are down 21 to 3. But the war's out there. Let's bring it there. Right? Let's bring the message that Jesus is the singular source of salvation. Because of him, we cannot be silent. Let's go tell the world that. 90,000 people need a repeated opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And how is it going to happen, right? Our relationship, our representation is going to bring questions. Hey, where did that change come from? You got to tell me. I don't, it, it, it seems unique. It seems a little odd. I'm not used to that. Tell me about that. We boldly, sensitively, right? Jesus. You want to know about me? What's different about my past and what's different about the way? It's all about Jesus. I didn't do it, actually. I still struggle nine times out of ten. But any change that you see, anything that, that looks divine and distinctive, guess what? It's Jesus doing it. It's not me. It's Jesus. Let me be clear. I can't do this on my own. This is something God, through Jesus Christ, has done for me. Can I tell you about that? That's what God's going to do in us. Questions will come. The opportunities will arise. And we will boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. No matter how intense the pressure no matter how inconvenient, or no matter how costly it would be, even if it means martyrdom. And we don't really think of that today. We go, well, that, I mean, you know, it's a Christian nation. But friends, that stripped us of our urgent necessity, hasn't it? That stripped us and, and comforted us and calmed us down. Thinking, we got time. Maybe a different day. Maybe, a, maybe that wasn't the right opportunity to speak. How many opportunities to proclaim the name have gone by because we've told ourselves that wasn't the right time? We got another time in another place. 
when questions come and God-given opportunities arise, and they will, no matter how intense the pressure, Christ's people, that's you and me, are going to proclaim Christ's name to the world that needs him so desperately. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you that you, Jesus, came into this world And you lived a perfect, sinless life. And you embraced the journey to the cross in obedient submission to the Father. A death and crucifixion that we all deserved, you took upon yourself as the full punishment for the sins that we've committed. You didn't commit those, Lord. We did. And yet three, on the third day, you rose again from the dead. You conquered all of our enemies. We praise you tonight as the crucified and risen Jesus. You are the cornerstone. Even though the builders rejected you, Jesus, you are the cornerstone. The whole building falls apart without you. Thank you for the hope of salvation. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody in the room that does not know the assurance of that hope of salvation, that they would cling to you tonight. That they would trust in you and you alone. That they would reject that their other ideas about how to get there are false and are down a path to destruction. But you, in you there's hope and salvation. Pray that they would rest in the grace of that salvation. And I also pray that all of us, that we would not think of another day or another time or a better moment, or maybe in a couple weeks, but that we would walk away from this place seeing the necessity that we must be saved. Ultimately, if we don't know you, we must be saved into relationship with you. And if there's a sin that we're committing here tonight that we feel shackled to, Man, we must be saved from that too. We got to be saved from our sins that are so besetting. We got to be saved, Lord. We need your holiness to faithfully represent you to a world that can't see you because we continue to struggle. Save us from our sins, Jesus. And send us from this place with that message. There's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Help us to boldly proclaim the name. It's in his name we pray. Amen.